This is Macro Horizons, Episode 17, Seasonal Bull Run, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill, Ben Jeffrey, and our II campaign manager, Art O. Spamslot, to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of May 6th, and a final request this year for your support in the survey. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. This past week, we got the Fed and NFP, but yields are still effectively unchanged. Ian, what's your take? It was truly a fascinating week in the Treasury market. We had the Fed deliver a non-cut cut via the move in interest on excess reserves. Admittedly, it's a fine-tuning measure, but something that initially led to a reasonable amount of bullish steepening in the Treasury market. We were happy to see that because that's very consistent with one of our core calls for 2019, although I was impressed with how quickly Powell was able to talk the market out of pricing in anything more dramatic on the steepening side. We then saw a very strong NFP print. However, the market ended up rallying after the fact. And I think that that is very telling to where we are at this point in the cycle. Now, within the details of the employment report, we did see average hourly earnings undershoot estimates, albeit only mildly. Average hourly earnings came in up two-tenths of a percent rather than the three-tenths of a percent consensus, and that left the year-over-year rate at 3.2. In a world in which the Fed is super-focused on inflation as the driver for the next move in monetary policy, it does make sense that the market was unwilling to sell off despite the very strong headline NFP print. We also, within the details, saw the labor market participation rate dropped two-tenths of a percent, accounting for the vast majority of the improvement in the unemployment rate. In the context of the market's recent price action, I think it's very telling that we rallied on the back of the strong GDP print recently, ostensibly because the inflation component was weaker. We then saw a repeat of that with the employment report, strong headline, incrementally disappointing inflation, and the treasury market rallied. This is also consistent with the results of our pre-NFP survey, which showed a particularly high interest in buying dips. While the initial knee-jerk response to NFP wasn't a dramatic backup in rates, apparently it was enough to bring in otherwise sidelined interest. There are a few things on our mind in the week ahead. Most notably, we have additional inflation information 
via the CPI report. However, there's a ton of treasury issuance and the seasonals in the treasury market really start to take hold following the May refunding auctions. So given the recent performance of the treasury market, we could easily envision a situation where a modest auction concession is met with strong demand, a repeat of lackluster inflation data, and the seasonal bullishness in the treasury market takes hold and yields drift lower. The big question is, how does that play out in the shape of the yield curve? We've been on about the cyclical re-steepening and frankly, might have jumped a little bit ahead of the curve, as it were, with our call for a breakout in twos tins once we got to that 25 basis point level. We've seen a modest retracement. The logic still holds. We still think the next big move in the curve is going to be steeper. However, we must acknowledge that it does carry very poorly in the present environment. So that might be creating a reasonable amount of headwind for that trade. Nonetheless, the 10 and 30 year supply and any auction concession should intuitively add to the steepening pressure as we go through the May refunding process. Overall, content with the steeping trend, open to an auction concession, but would still like to come out of the auction process long into the summer months. It was a very telling week in the treasury market insofar as the market's response to Powell's decision to cut interest on excess reserves. We had tossed around that idea last week and frankly thought it was a lower probability outcome than obviously it ended up being. Yeah, going in, I had ballparked it around 20% odds, say, was a live option, but certainly wasn't my base case. I had figured they would tee up that kind of adjustment for June rather than respond so quickly to the drift in Fed funds. I wasn't surprised by the market's initial reaction. So in terms of gauging the curve's response function to a more dovish Fed, the initial re-steepening that got twos tens to 25 basis points made sense. What I was very surprised by was the press conference and Powell's ability to very effectively talk the market off of a dovish ledge, quite frankly. And I think, John, that's a point that you have made is that while we have liked to call this adjustment to IOER kind of the no cut cut, quote unquote, in actuality, really all it is, is an adjustment to kind of the plumbing in money markets, rather than reflection of a true dovish monetary policy impulse. It's really just an effort to bring Fed funds back down a few basis points. Yeah, I mean, the reality is Fed funds is now unchanged since March 26th. The goal is not to raise rates. The goal is not to lower rates. It's just a plumbing issue internally. The risk was always the communication channel and the possibility of a tweet suggesting where the other 95 basis points. And after this latest adjustment, something that I've been hearing a lot more is that maybe IOER is in fact becoming the de facto policy rate for the Fed. What's your read on that idea? So Dudley had an op-ed out in Bloomberg this past week, and Dudley's the old New York Fed president who kind of suggested maybe the Fed should just target IOER or acknowledge that there are one and a half trillion dollars of reserves compensated on the level. 
I think to your point, IOER is already the Fed's most powerful tool and really sets the floor for bank lending, right? If you're a bank and you can deposit at the Fed at now 235, it's really hard to justify lending to somebody less than 235. So it's an incredibly powerful tool in money markets. You saw it act as a magnet towards Fed funds, previously drawing Fed funds up, now kind of as a downward magnet on Fed funds and other lending. IOR is just an incredibly powerful tool. There are potentially some issues with implementing it as a true policy rate, though. And I think one of those big issues is the fact that unlike Fed funds, it's not market determined. Rather, it's simply chosen by the FOMC and kind of mandated, whereas albeit the Fed funds market doesn't have the highest volumes, that is at least something that is traded in the open market. Well, that certainly begs the question then. We've already seen one adjustment with the Fed on hold. Do you think that we'll see another adjustment later in 2019? I think our most recent NFP survey shed some good light on this in that the vast majority of people saw either zero or one more tweak to IOER before the year is out. And I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, we're at 235 now. One more adjustment would bring us down to 230. And then you're only five basis points away from the bottom of the Fed funds target range. One of my biggest takeaways from the response in the broader treasury market, I think, was that 10 and 30-year treasuries were quite content to simply ignore what was going on in the very front end of the curve to a large extent. 10-year yields at 250 continued to be a key focal point. The long end, every time 30-year yields managed to trade above 3%, we continue to see a fair amount of buying interest. It does leave me to ponder whether or not all the nuance that's playing out in the very front end of the curve really ultimately matters to treasury investors. And as a short rates guy, part of me wants to push back on that. But I think you're right. The whole purpose was to keep Fed funds flat at around 240. And it could just reflect that we have an FOMC on hold, not changing rates, making some incremental changes to the way they discuss inflation, but really steady as she goes. So therefore, a lot of the commentary has to focus on the one thing that did change at the last meeting. I had an interesting phone call this week. And that was from a longtime client and good friend who read one of our write-ups and felt compelled to essentially, as a good mentor does, sit me down and tell me how I've gotten things terribly wrong. You do that to me every week. You know nothing, John Hill. You're welcome. So back to the phone call. So it was really interesting to hear a meaningful critique of two of our tactical calls. The first one was we have been increasingly comfortable with the idea that the 2s, 10s cyclical re-steepening has commenced. And from here, having touched 25 basis points, 2s, 10s, the next target level will be 35, give or take. Now, it turns out that that might have been a little bit early, given the market's response to Powell. The other bit of constructive criticism was related to our tactical long in 10-year break-evens. So that long break-evens trade we had put on when 10-year break-evens increased to multi-week, multi-month highs, and we thought we would go with a little bit of the positive momentum. Unfortunately, the timing of that was a little bit off, partly due to some disappointing inflation data in PCE, a little bit of downward pressure in oil. 
But really, Ian, to your point, the Fed wasn't hawkish this past week, but they weren't as dovish as the market expected, which kind of translates into hawkish pricing, if you will. And classic hawkish pricing is higher reals, lower break-evens, and a flatter curve. So given the Fed's focus on inflation, it was interesting to hear Powell talk about some of the transitory or temporary aspects of the current trend towards lower inflation. Recall we just saw a core PCE year-over-year print at 1.55%. John, what was your take? So my traditional economic way of thinking certainly sympathizes with Powell's thought that this might be a transitory one-off. We had a sharp tightening of financial conditions around year-end that should slow some of the expansionary behavior, maybe put some temporary downward pressure on inflation. But at the end of the day, you know, think what drives inflationary pressure. We have unemployment below neutral, we have an economy running above potential, and we have well-anchored forward inflation expectations, maybe not as high as the Fed would like to see, but 10-year break-evens are still 30 basis points or so above the lows they saw in January. He kind of put all that together. Sure, the traditional way of thinking would have some comfort that inflation should drift back up, The problem, though, and this is something we've discussed a lot, I think the traditional way of thinking corresponds to higher inflation is a sentence that's been said nonstop for years without seeing the kind of acceleration that otherwise would have been forecast. So in light of the current trajectory of inflation, is it safe to say that Powell's attempting to catch a falling knife? Or butcher the use of a common idiom? When in Rome? It's water under the bridge. Let's get back on track. The upcoming refunding auctions, where sizes were confirmed to be left unchanged in the refunding statement, have historically marked sort of a tipping point, so to speak, in the treasury market. And what we've seen historically is that sort of the inverse of the old adage for stocks, sell in May and go away. Yeah, it is interesting. If you look at the seasonal patterns in 10-year treasuries, The May refunding is the key inflection point. Now, post-crisis, that has actually extended somewhat, and one could make the argument it's actually the first week of June that the real change occurs. And on average, we have seen a 30 to 40 basis point rally in 10-year yields between that inflection point and roughly the middle of September. It will be important this round to watch the non-dealership takedown of 10 years because the anecdotes that continue to come out of Japan are that there is a shift toward unhedged buying of foreign bonds, presumably including U.S. Treasuries. Just at a higher level, it continues to be pretty remarkable how well a lot of the supply has been taken down. Maybe remarkable is the wrong word. I don't know if I'm surprised by this. I think people often overplay supply as a pricing factor. But sure, auction sizes are unchanged, Ben, but these are all-time record highs in 10s and 30s, and it doesn't seem really to have tossed the market around at all, month in, month out. It's interesting that that plays in reasonably well to the MMT argument that has continued to get a fair amount of attention in the press recently. Yeah, and we'll see how that plays out, even though I think, generally speaking, the market has moved on from trading news around that, with a more recent example being the complete non-reaction of headlines heading that the two sides of the aisle seem to be coming together on an infrastructure bill. Well, 
I also would say there are three sides to the aisle. There's the White House, Republican Congress, and Democrats in Congress, and some Republicans in Congress seem to suggest that the only way we can get a $2 trillion infrastructure bill is if it's fully paid for. Who knows at this point? It's early, but more generally, when it comes to infrastructure, one point I like to make is infrastructure takes a while. It's not a quick transfer that can be borrowed and sent around or a tax cut that is relatively quick to implement. You know, infrastructure, just simply, there's a lot of planning, a lot of activity that goes through before the money really gets flowing. In essence, there's not necessarily two trillion of shovel-ready projects, if you will. And so if we got that impulse, it would kind of be a slower burn over an extended period. I would add, though, it wouldn't be a slow burn in the equity market. Some of the firms that would be obvious winners in that scenario would clearly outperform, and that has been one of the themes in our conversations, will flow through to reduced equity market vol and easier financial conditions. And more generally, I certainly sympathize with the idea that the U.S. needs an infrastructure upgrade, modernization, everything from the higher profile projects to just improving the electricity grid or plumbing system. It seems appropriate. It's more a question of how would one pay for this and measuring the longer term economic consequences are obviously difficult, but absolutely it should cause a risk positive reaction were this to be determined and actually signed into law. So how inflationary do you think it would be? I think intuitively one would say you have an infrastructure bill, demand for construction goods and materials will increase, but will that really flow through to the consumer side? It's hard to say. I think directionally, sure, this should put upward pressure on prices, but similar to tax reform, probably less than some other thought might have it. They're just too big of demographic and longer term forces at work here, not even to mention some of the crazy technological advancements. Well, we do have CPI coming up. And I think within the context of the Fed's renewed focus on inflation, it will be very important to see the breakdown within the core series. We've been on about this idea that shelter and OER have really been the two drivers behind the core series, although in recent months, some of the fluctuations in apparel have been very meaningful, as well as new and used vehicle sales. So on that topic, Ian, one thing we've seen recently is a stabilization in some of the housing market, especially after some of the drop in mortgage rates we've seen over the past few months. How does that then feed through into your expectation for OER and therefore inflation? Well, I think it follows intuitively that stabilization in the housing market will halt any more material decline in prices. The caveat that I would add there is that the translation between slowing sales, lower prices, downward pressure on rents, and the OER component itself tends to occur with a bit of a lag. So while this might ultimately put a floor on how far we would expect OER to move, it doesn't necessarily mean that we won't have a very typical late cycle mean reversion back to a consistent 0.2 add from the OER component. So more of a removal of downside risk than shift in the baseline expectation? That's a fair characterization. I think it's also consistent with, more broadly speaking, what the Fed is attempting to orchestrate at this point, which is the 
coveted and all-too-rare soft landing for the economy. So what do you think the odds are that Jerome is able to pull it off? Well, they seem a lot higher now than they did at the end of March. And I think that's really the operative question, less about what I think the Fed is going to be able to orchestrate at this moment, and more how the market is going to respond to the fluctuations in economic data and what that implies for the outright level of rates. More importantly, it's not just what's occurring in the U.S. economy at this moment, but it's a global issue. The Fed appears to be reluctantly accepting the role as the central bank to the world. Again, we've made this point a few times, just the connection between financial conditions, the strength in the dollar, equity market volatility, really leaves the Fed sensitive to what's going on overseas. And as we get further clarity on the situation in Europe and some of the flow through to the Chinese and Asian economies, I think that one will be able to make a far more compelling argument as to whether or not the Fed will really be able to create a soft landing. That said, there's no question that the Fed is certainly trying to foam the runway on this one. Alex, colloquial metaphor for 200, please. Ben, don't put this podcast in jeopardy. Too late. In the week ahead, we're expecting a relatively slow start in the Treasury market as we don't have any pivotal data or supply until midweek. The 10-year auction, as we affectionately call it the benchmark of all benchmarks, will be very telling insofar as non-dealer interest. The week's biggest data event is obviously Friday's core CPI release, and given the recent trend in the data, it's difficult for us not to have anything other than a downside skew. Nonetheless, we're open to a reasonable auction concession ahead of 10s and 30s, and this will put upward pressure on the curve. Two's 10s continue to trade in a 9 to 25 basis point range. Any attempt to break out, as we have seen, has been met with pretty significant resistance. We also get a great deal of Fed speak this week. Our expectations are for the Fed to offer a degree of clarity. It'll be notable if there's any further clarification or hints that an insurance cut might be in the offing. That said, it's difficult to imagine that outcome given the tone of Powell's press conference. There's been a lot of chatter about what it would actually take to get a rate hike put back on the table. Now, the Fed's official line is that there's no reason to move in either direction at this point, which follows intuitively given the fact that they didn't move last week. Nonetheless, as we contemplate what it would take, the notion that we might actually see the 25 basis point rate hike that the Fed is projecting in 2020 is difficult for us to imagine. At this stage, an acceleration of inflation, while it would serve to steepen the curve, it isn't going to be met with the traditional tightening response on the part of the Fed. The Fed has done a brilliant job at laying the groundwork for a symmetric approach to their inflation mandate. Turning to the technical profile, stochastics reached a point at which they were oversold a few weeks ago, that has since reversed, although conditions are nowhere near being overbought. 
in terms of the shape of the curve, the steepening momentum reached well into overbought or steep conditions. And so it wasn't too surprising to see, at least solely from a technical perspective, the correction back toward the 20 basis point level in twos tens. If we look at DSIs, one of our favorite indicators, what we see is that overbought conditions have been worked off both in TY and US. In fact, US is mid-range at this point, which bodes well for the long bond auction. At the risk of repeating the idea, we still like the steepening trade and would like to come out of the auction process long. We've reached the point where we would like to offer our sincerest thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to listen this far. And a gentle reminder that the II poll closes on Friday, May 10th, channeling campaigns of yore. If you liked it, then you should have put a vote on it. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. 
Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.